With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. One thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Bao Zong. In this episode, we continue our discussion on the diagnosis and treatment of ocular emergencies. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. So let's go back to hyphema. So hyphema, we have blood in the anterior chamber of the eye. There are four grades of hyphema. Uh, if you could talk about the four grades and you know a severe eight ball hyphema or just a very small hyphema. And the different types of treatment that we would, how we would handle that. Yeah, so in general with those, uh, those cases, um, at the very beginning, there's actually called a microhyphema, which would be basically tiny little red blood cells floating around in the anterior chamber that haven't really settled down yet. Then as you go up, so the hyphema tends to collect and sort of build, I guess, on itself. Um, and you can have anywhere from a small, like a one millimeter or less hyphema. And then as you go up in, um, you know, the, the percentage of the anterior chamber that's full, and you can find grading scales all over. If you just Google it, there's like a million pictures you can look at for a visual reference. Um, but basically, as, as the amount increases and the grade increases, and so does kind of your concern for the patient's visual uh, welfare, basically. So in cases where there is small hyphema, um, you still follow those patients closely and you treat them. Um, still, I don't know if we want to talk about the treatment really, but um, in those cases, you know, I'd probably start with corticosteroids and uh, something to dilate the eye, maybe like atropine or cyclopentylate, um, and then just keep a watch on those patients. And other patients who have a more, you know, uh, higher level of hyphema, you would be more concerned that they could possibly have, you know, greater damage to the iris, more risk of bleeding in the eye or re-bleeding in the eye. Um, and those patients you'd follow closely still. So in general, um, the higher that is, the higher my concern is. And then the eight ball is basically where the entire anterior chamber is filled with blood. I've never seen an eight ball myself, actually, surprisingly from, you know, after working in the ER. But um, in those cases, you know, the blood actually can start to can clot as well and become kind of darker in color. Um, and those patients are at a higher risk as well for, for further complications. And at what point do you recommend bed rest or actually even hospitalization for these patients? Yeah, so, so bed rest, I recommend, and um, I would say, you know, probably for me, if it's like half, you know, like a 50%, in cases where there's, you know, a one millimeter or two millimeter hyphema, I still recommend quiet ambulation. So like you can walk around and things like that, but no activities, I have them refrain from any sporting events or sporting activities. Um, you know, inevitably these patients always have something going on that's like, oh, I was, 
you know, I've had a, one of my patients was a younger guy and he was in a bowling, you know, bowling state championships in two weeks. And he had all of his practices lined up and I'm like, how aggressive is bowling? I don't know. I'm like, maybe at that level, it's more than I do, but I'm like the two-handed, you know, go down that, that little slide one. So it's probably different how I bowl. So I'm like, yeah, I would probably lay, lay low, you know? Um, so basically quiet ambulation, I usually have the patient shield their eye when they sleep. Uh, because we don't want them rubbing or bumping the eye, try to keep the head of the bed elevated. And I do these things for all of my hyphema patients, regardless of how much I see. Um, so, you know, and in hospitalization really would depend. So if for some reason they might not, I've never hospitalized a patient for hyphema, um, but certainly I, I could see the, the reason to in some patients, especially patients who, you know, maybe wouldn't have the mental ability to not rub the eye, touch the eye. Maybe they're not fully aware of the situation and could damage their eye further um, and would need some sort of way to basically calm them down so they don't keep bumping it or rubbing it or aggressively moving. And if they can't control it, then that, you know, could be an indication for those patients. And about 30% of the people, their eye pressure goes up. What kind of drop, if you have to use drops to lower the intraocular, the eye pressure, people associate eye pressure with glaucoma, what would, what would be the drops that we use? And is there any type of drop you don't want to use like a prostaglandin? Yeah, definitely. So in those cases, you would want to maybe stick towards an aqueous suppressant. So something that decreases the production of aqueous in the eye. So that's going to be your, um, your bromonidine type drops or the, the alpha agonist. Also a beta blocker. So timolol or something like that would be, could be efficacious in these cases. Um, I will use oftentimes also a CAI or a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. Um, you know, and some people will say in those cases, you would be wary of sickle cell patients. So, I mean, I agree with that definitely. Um, I don't know to what extent you'd have to get so much of that in the, in the eye to cause the, you know, cause a negative effect, but if you can withhold it, I would. Um, and then the ones that you don't want to use as far as a topical medication would be something that is pro-inflammatory. So, if you have something like a prostaglandin analog, um, that would be something you would defer on using because that can theoretically create more inflammation in an area you're trying to de-inflame already. And we want to try to prevent rebleeding because for what about 10, 20% of the people will rebleed. Yeah, definitely. So rebleeding can be uh, can be dangerous for these patients. And typically the way that you'd see that is the, the hyphema as it gets older, it's in the eye for longer, it should be shrinking down. And uh, so it's important to measure the height each time you see these patients, but it also gets kind of a darker color too. Um, and then when you see a rebleed, you'll see kind of a layer of lighter, redder, brighter blood on the top of that. And that would be an indication that they've had a rebleed. And that happens, you know, sometimes we think of obviously repeated trauma to the eyes, so they bump or rub it, that could cause a rebleed or just as, as a tissue, as the blood's kind of um, retreating or going away, it sometimes forms clots and that can sort of contract and that can also cause some rebleeding as well. Um, but those patients, when they have a rebleed are at higher risk for developing elevated IOP especially in the acute phase. And so that's something that we definitely want to watch out for and monitor each time they come in. And that brings us to angle recession glaucoma because about up to 20% of the people who have had trauma to the eye, they could rip part of the eye. And if you could explain that and get something called angle recession glaucoma. So if you could definitely. go into that. Yeah, so I think this is something that can get missed both by the practitioner and the provider or practitioner and the patient on the initial evaluation of ocular trauma. 
And really what we want to tell the patient, I, I try to tell them the first time they come in, but I know there's a lot going through their head. So I'll repeat it again, um, is that these patients have a risk for developing glaucoma in this eye. Generally speaking, angle recession is, you know, where there's trauma to basically the um, kind of the insertion of the iris into the angle that actually the structures there can tear and rip and that causes traumatic damage and also impacts the function of the trabecular meshwork or the drainage apparatus in the eye. And so when that happens, there might be a part of that structure that's circumferential, but maybe, you know, 40% or 60% of it doesn't work anymore because it's damaged. So now you have an eye that has a reduced ability to get fluid out of the eye. Not every patient that has that structural damage will go on to develop glaucoma. Um, but one thing I tell all these patients at the beginning, and, and again, as I see them, is that, hey, you're always going to be at risk for developing glaucoma, especially if, you know, after everything settles down, after the, the blood clears, if you can do gonioscopy, which is definitely recommended for all of these patients, and look at the angle structure yourself and compare it both eyes, um, especially if you see an area where you can tell there's actually angle recession, then those patients should even have, you know, that kind of that risk put in their mind just so they know going on in the future they could develop this. And what's the time frame you think we have to wait before we could do gonioscopy? And then quickly just explain what gonioscopy is. Yeah, so gonioscopy is, um, you know, evaluating the structure of the drainage part of the eye, which is called the angle. And so because of the optics in the eye um, and the way that light moves from inside the eye to outside of the eye, you, you, there's a barrier with basically how far kind of into the angle you can see. So we have to use a special lens on the eye to get over that, um, that surface surface interaction and be able to see the structure. So once we put the lens on the eye, we can evaluate the, the drainage apparatus much better. Um, and we're able to see if there's any areas that have trauma or damage, um, things like that. So when we look at the structure of the eye, you know, when we're looking for that angle recession, um, and we see it, generally those patients, you know, if you've never seen them before, you ask, have you had a history of trauma in the eye? Um, and the, really that should be done. I think, you know, once you're really in the clear as far as the, as far as the hyphema and ocular inflammation. So basically a lot of people will say a month out, you can do it. I wait until we're kind of done with the drops. There's really, in my opinion, not an emergency to do it at this point. Um, and I'd rather make sure that the eyes stabilize and I'm not going to cause a rebleed. So certainly once all the hyphema is gone, even the microhyphema, then you could probably do it. Um, you know, so it might be a month in some cases could be a little sooner, but I'd usually be probably on the side of caution and just wait a little bit longer. And then the development for glaucoma in these patients can be, you know, very, it can range. It could be years later, decades later that these patients suddenly develop unilateral glaucoma, you know, and then we have those questions that we probably all ask anyway, or hope we do. If there's unilateral glaucoma, you're thinking something smells a little fishy here because glaucoma is typically a bilateral condition. And so then you ask any history of trauma to the eye and then they might come up with, oh yeah, one long time ago, I you know, was, had to put all these drops in my eye, I had to hit my eye with something, a baseball, you know, um, and then you kind of get that history uh, from the patient, but that's, there's a lifelong risk. Um, and then other studies have shown that the fellow eye is actually at a higher risk of developing primary open angle glaucoma, even if that eye didn't have trauma, if there's traumatic glaucoma in one eye. So that's also very interesting. I don't understand the pathophysiology behind that at all, um, but it's out there. So something to keep in mind. It just shows how the body works in homeostasis and tries to keep itself kind of uh, le leveled out, to, so to speak.
Mm-hmm. So I have an 11 year old and I, I worry about uh, a blowout fracture because he's a baseball player. And uh, talk to us about blowout fractures and how those are treated and maybe yeah, how so, they're prevented. Yeah, pre- prevented, <laughs> no sports. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or like, you know, prevention is, is great when you can, but even things that, you know, a slip and a fall and you hit your face, that can cause it too. So I guess no walking around either. No. Um, so basically, you know, in those cases, baseball is a, maybe a primary risk just because of the size of the ball in relation to the orbit. But basically a fracture of the orbit. So the orbit's, you know, the, the bony compartment where the eye sits, right? And it's got all the muscles and the fat around the eye. And so what happens in fractures is that there's usually, in most cases, kind of a blunt trauma to the ocular periorbital area. And that actually causes kind of this force on the bone that can cause the bone itself to break or snap or something under that, under that pressure. So a blowout fracture typically is from the, the floor of the orbit having the bones broken out. Um, and so that's really what, you know, what we're worried about there. So the patient typically can see double, the eye is swollen. At what point uh, are we thinking about a surgical repair? Yeah, definitely. So I think the first question to answer is probably when do we get imaging for these patients? And so a lot of patients will come in with trauma around the eye. Maybe they got, you know, punched or something in the eye or had a baseball bat, you know, keep going back to baseball. Sorry. <laughs> uh, any sport, you know, tennis, we'll call it we'll say tennis. Um, well, I, I recently had a patient with a high femur and, 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 it, and he was playing cricket. So oh, yeah. in this area, they play a lot where I live. There's a lot of cricket being played because people are from parts of the world where they play cricket so yeah, I, I don't know if you ever had a cricket injury with a high fever but I did I can't <laughs> say that I have probably the, the most interesting one was a champagne cork to the oh, eye sorry. yeah you know. it got from celebratory to to non-celebratory yeah. really quick for that for that individual um but for the uh for the orbital fracture, you know, what we look at first is different signs. So definitely what you said, you know, double vision, um, pain when they're moving the eye, or just pain in general, swelling around the eye. The eye might be proptotic or sticking forward in cases where there's a lot of swelling behind the eye, or the eye could be enophthalmic or kind of sunken back if there's a fracture, because then in the case of a fracture, some of that maybe orbital fat or tissue muscles could have herniated into a sinus, especially the floor, there's a lot of room for things to go. And then the eye can actually sink back and sometimes downwards. So those would be clinical signs that there's maybe been trauma, but I will say not every patient that has double vision has a fracture. Not every patient that has pain around the eye has a fracture. So how do we tell the difference? Um, in most cases, when I see a patient that has, um, you know, had known trauma around the eye, uh, one of the first things that I always think about that's actually saved me in a couple of cases was the V2 sensation. So there's a you know cranial nerve V2 or five. So the maxillary division of the trigeminal nerve actually passes from the um, inferorbital fissure and goes down on the floor of the orbit and then kind of dips down into the bone. And then it comes out right here in the front in a canal. And so what happens is when there's a fracture of the floor, it, it usually can break that canal because that's a weak spot of the orbit and it's gonna damage that nerve you know, when that happens. And so one of the questions, like I said, this has saved me a couple of times and one patient, it was the only thing that she had after, after trauma, some, some bruising around the eye. 
And I just felt right here. And I said, can you feel this? And I compared both sides. She said, no, I can't really feel it on that side. Okay. Well, then obviously we know there's probably a floor fracture. Um, you can also ask about teeth numbness on the upper side of the teeth or lip numbness um, or just cheek numbness in general. Um, I usually have them take their mask down and actually, you know, feel, feel that area. So that's a big sign for me. If I have someone that has that numbness, I will definitely get the scan regardless, because I feel like it's such a high probability that they have a, a fracture. The other thing is if they have enophthalmus or proptosis, I'll get a scan. If they have diplopia in primary gaze, I'll definitely get a scan. If they've got a little bit of double only when they look really far off to the side, that's maybe not as specific for a, for a fracture. Um, but certainly, you know, you could still get it if you're, if you're concerned. And then the, the next question that you're kind of posing is when do these patients need surgery? There's a couple cases where these patients should have surgery right away. Um, one of them would be that if there's, you know, entrapment of the muscle, uh, basically into the bone. Uh, and the reason that that's a problem is if that muscle is, is captured or entrapped and then it becomes ischemic, that muscle no longer will have function. Um, and it's oftentimes on imaging, you can see it's kind of tethered to an area or tethered to a, a broken spot of bone. Um, the other thing that can, be, can happen, especially in kids, is they can have a green stick fracture, which is basically where their bones, just like you know, everything, they're more flexible than, than you know, us old people are. And so as their bones are too, their bones can actually stretch a little bit and then kind of snap back into place. So older people will have a bone that doesn't stretch or have that flexibility, it just breaks. But younger people will have a bone that kind of stretches and snaps a little bit and then it can snap back into place and doing that can actually capture tissue in that area. And so that would be something that would need, you know, definite repair as soon as possible. The other case is something that is probably less, less common or not thought about very much, but it's the oculocardiac reflex. And so if we have patients that have some kind of fracture and trapped tissue, or there's, you know, um, tissue or peri, uh, like fascial tissue that's trapped and is tugging on a muscle, it can actually start sort of this, this almost vagal, or it is a vagal response, basically, where the heart rate can drop. It can cause um, a sinus bradycardia, it can cause abnormal heart rhythm, um, low heart rate, and that actually can be life-threatening. So that was first described, I believe, in cases of strabismus surgery, where they're actually going in and, you know, moving muscle, tugging and cutting. During surgery, people would start to become bradycardic, um, but it can happen also in trauma cases where there's entrapment or pulling of the tissue. So entrapment of tissue or, um, you know, these patients that have kind of this vasovagal type appearance with trauma, those patients should be repaired right away. Um, the other patients that, that have a fracture, not every fracture needs surgical repair. And so patients that don't have a lot of diplopia, that don't have diplopia in primary gaze, sometimes, you know, surgeons will wait a week or two and just kind of monitor them closely and see if there's any recovery of function. So a swollen muscle can cause diplopia, even though it's not trapped in anything, right? And so after a couple of weeks, you know, if, they, if they're going to repair patients that don't need emergency repair, they're usually going to do it one to two weeks later to let some of the inflammation settle down. Um, you know, some of the things go back to a more normal state before they go in and start operating. And in those cases, um, you know, at that point in time, you can see if they've had, you know, a significant improvement in their symptoms, they're not having double vision anymore. There's no uh, globe malposition, either anteriorly or posteriorly. They might wait, they might just monitor the patient that everyone needs to have it repaired. 
But at that point too, as swelling's going down, maybe they didn't have enoxalmus initially, but now they're starting to have a sunken back appearance. Those patients are probably gonna have even more sinking or more kind of retraction of the globe as inflammation continues to heal. And you don't want that being a problem long-term. You want that symmetry for the patient afterwards um, for a lot of reasons. And that patient might undergo repair, you know, a couple of weeks after their injury. And typically you don't want them blowing their nose. And sometimes no. you hear that crackling noise, the crepitus. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's definitely not something you want. So, you know, when you see these patients and they have an orbital fracture, maybe they don't need repair right away. Uh, what should we be doing as far as educating the patients? You know, number one, we should tell them not to blow their nose. Um, and in these cases, I feel like they probably would have more nasal secretion than normal. And so you really have to stress that. Also, if they're going to be sneezing at all, you want them to open mouth sneeze. Um, if they're out in public, put their mask on first. So they're not spraying, you know, oh, I can't say the word. Otherwise, we'll get right. taken down from YouTube, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so basically, in those cases that you want to reduce the amount of kind of that Valsalva pressure that people have because that can actually force air. If there's, a, if there's an opening between the orbit and a sinus, which if they had a fracture, that's probably where it's gonna be. Um, it can let that air up into the orbit and can cause you know, orbital, sometimes in, in severe cases, like an orbital compartment syndrome, which puts pressure on everything and can affect the optic nerve as well. Um, I've seen a case of a, of a guy that came in, I actually just gave this in a lecture like last weekend, and he had felt fine. He got punched in the eyes in a boxing match and he got punched felt fine, no symptoms. A couple of days later, he's in the shower and he sneezed and he comes out of the shower and everything's super swollen on that side. Well, it was all air basically because he had a fracture he didn't know about. But when he sneezed, all of the air rushed up into his orbit. It was all preceptal. There was some that was postceptal as well. Um, and that was really our, we were like, well, you definitely have a fracture. Let's, so we got imaging and you can see these dark air spaces around everywhere. Um, so yeah, you don't want, you don't want them to sneeze. And then also people will prescribe nasal decongestants or over-the-counter decongestants. And that's basically to help them not have to sneeze. It kind of dries things up so they don't have as much running and leaking. And then some people also prescribe an oral antibiotic as well. Um, this is, I think in the literature, something that, you know, there's, there's not a recipe book for everything. Um, in this case too, it depends on who's prescribing. So in general, if you if a patient goes to um, a full service emergency department and they see a fracture, they're very, very likely to prescribe an oral antibiotic for these patients. If someone goes to see um, an ophthalmologist, they're fairly likely to prescribe them. If this patient goes and sees an oculoplastic surgeon, they're less likely to prescribe antibiotics. And so what's the, the experience bias comes into play here is I think that these patients in general have a low risk of developing what we're worried about is orbital cellulitis or an infection from the sinus into the orbital tissue. Um, and really the risk is quite low. In cases where these patients are immunosuppressed, so you know a diabetic patient even, or someone who's on immunotherapy treatments of some kind, um, or any patient that has sinus disease on the CT imaging, those patients would be prime candidates for oral antibiotics. Inpatients who are otherwise healthy, have no sinus disease, have no immunosuppression, um, you know, really the risk is, is quite low for developing an infection. Right. Uh, what, a, what a great explanation. I really appreciate that.
one thing optometry has been missing is a unified message that explains the importance of eye care. Now, OYE Broadcasting has solved that dilemma. We're excited to announce this content delivery service that is designed to expand and enhance your practice and grow the industry of optometry as a whole. Please visit OYEbroadcasting.com for more information and sign up today. Let's talk about somebody that has flashing floaters, new floaters, maybe they've lost part of their vision. What are we thinking? Yeah, definitely. So in those symptoms, and they come in a lot, we're worried specifically about uh, retinal tears, retinal detachments. And so really we tell the patient that calls in with those symptoms, hey, you know what, we can talk all day on the phone, but there's no way we're gonna know until you've come in. Um, and really laying your eyes on, on their eyes, um, sounds really cheesy, is, is the only way to, to know for sure. So we look for you know, signs in the vitreous like blood or pigment in the vitreous. We look for a posterior vitreous detachment where you can see kind of that posterior highlight face coming interiorly or maybe a white ring over the nerve. Um, and then especially looking at the retina. So we need to be able to do a dilated exam, look at everything in detail. And then if I have patients that have these symptoms that are coming in acutely, I also do a scleral depressed exam just to look at the very, very far edges um, to get a full, a full examination. Now, 70% of the people that have a retinal detachment are non-traumatic, and half of them are myopic. And the more myopic they are, the greater the risk of retinal detachment. So if they're over three diopters, it's like a 10 times risk. So some, one of the things that kind of bothers me is when people go on their phone and they think they're getting an eye exam, and you know they might be minus three, minus four, minus five, but they're really putting themselves at risk. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think there's there's kind of a push to do more and more things virtually, like away from away from the doctor, and uh, you know, in some senses. And I, I would speak from a from an area where I do a lot of virtual care. Actually, um, at least one day a week, I do virtual telehealth consults with patients, and that's like a whole another whole other story. Um, and a lot of them, I'm able to help. You know, it's a subcon team. It's a it's a you know a sty or shalazian or something. And we could talk about that. Uh, but a lot of cases I'm not able to see. And, and the patients usually understand that once I explain it to them. But going you know, online and, and doing things without seeing a doctor in person, especially if you have symptoms like that, um, the flashes, floaters, things like that, you really are, you know, they're doing a disservice to their own ocular health because there's no way that anyone would be able to evaluate that remotely. Um, even when there's, you know, like a screening retinal camera somewhere, I, I still don't feel like that's, you know, as good. It's not as good as an in-person exam because we can't see everything. We can't get as far peripherally in the retina to look for pathology. One of the things that we really have to worry about with retinal detachment is whether the macula is on, whether the macula is off, and how much time can they wait? If you could go over that. Definitely. So the macula, of course, is a, the central part of the retina, the most important for our crisp, you know, 2020 vision or our best visual acuity. And so when that detaches, those patients obviously have a, a drastic change in their visual acuity um, and the clarity of their vision and in, in their central vision. And so really, you know, if we have a patient that comes in, that's the macula is still attached and they have a detachment elsewhere. Um, those patients are, are treated, you know, emergently because they, you know, we need to basically keep the macula on for the best possible acuity outcome in the end. Um, once patients have the macula detached, I think you'll find maybe some 
discrepancy in the literature as far as when they need to be um, you know, repaired surgically. Generally speaking, if the macula is off, repairing it anytime within a week, they have pretty much the same outcomes. Um, then the, the outcomes we look at you know, is essentially visual acuity. There are some other studies, I think we'll maybe see more of this coming out in the literature. I know there was a, um, a survey of, of UK or uh, United Kingdom vitreoretinal surgeons, and they're basically kind of all sharing their outcomes together, a huge, huge N. And some of them were basically supporting earlier repair. Um, and so they were kind of using terms such as um, time of macular detachment. And so some of that is maybe controversial because it depends on the patients thinking back, when did you lose your central vision? You know, and maybe they are not able to say, but when did that macula detach? And then you go from time of macula detachment or loss of central vision to repair um, because they don't always come in right away, you know? And so some studies will, are sort of, I guess, almost pointing towards earlier repair in those macula off detachments as well, which is kind of interesting. So I'm interested to see as time moves forward and we have, you know, more of our um, doctors and physicians sharing data. I'm interested to see kind of what happens with really big data. So you've got different data collection services that are kind of coming up in different countries. And that's where we're going to get super big numbers, I think. It's a lot of, I think, detail going through everything. And there's obviously patients don't always fit one category, um, but I think we'll see some of that information coming out. Now, as far as right now, I would basically, if I have someone that's, you know, a macula off, even though we say, okay, it can be repaired within a week, I'm not going to send it in a week. I'm still going to send it. But then the, the surgeon has time to kind of plan. And really, you, you do want the surgeons to have their normal, you know, their normal OR, their normal staff that works with them. They going in and fix something at you know 3 a.m. might not get as good of an outcome as their normal routine with their normal staff that knows where all the stuff they want is, and you know you want that kind of um, a, a good OR that's run you know smoothly instead of going like immediately the night before. Maybe there's you know a better outcome if they have the right group with them that they're used to working with. So there's a lot of variables that that go into that. Um, but yeah, it's kind of an interesting topic. I think we might see more big data kind of coming out on that topic in the, in the future. How about macula splitting? Macula splitting. So I would treat those like a macula on for me. So where it's like half on, the fovea is like barely hanging on kind of thing. Um, I mean, those patients, the, the thing is, as, as optometrists, when we're seeing these patients and referring them, we have to, you know, keep in mind that, you know, they're driving maybe, you know, 20 minutes or half an hour across town or something try to position the patient maybe. So if they've got a macula splitting detachment, it's coming from the temporal side lifting off, you know, maybe have them tilt their head like this while they're going over um, and, and not eat things on the way over to the surgeon's office so that they can plan appropriately. Um, but yeah, I would treat those, I would treat those like an emergency. Right. And the time that they've eaten the last meal is important. It is, yeah. So if they're going for surgery um, or they're someone who might need emergency surgery to get the best visual outcome in the end, uh, they might recommend waiting six hours until they've eaten last. Um, and that's just to prevent other complications with anesthesia. Well, let's talk about the older or uh, even a, a middle-aged Asian woman. She's plus four. She comes in and she's in severe eye pain and she lost her vision. 
uh, acute angle glaucoma, something that we're all concerned about. Talk to us about that, the, the signs, symptoms, and what we do about those, that type of patient. Yeah, so those patients are definitely an ocular emergency as well, and the angle closure patients. Uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the, the classic presentation that we see someone who's a hyperope, maybe they have a short axial length or a shorter, smaller anterior chamber. Especially as they're getting up in age, that lens starts to get thicker and can, can crowd the angle. Sometimes people have intermittent bouts of angle closure, so that's a question that I'll ask people. Um, if they have narrow angles, have you had episodes where the vision goes blurry, you get a headache or redness around the eye, um, uh, halos around lights, things like that. And particularly if the pressure gets really high in the eye, they can also get nausea and, and maybe vomiting. So those are all things that, that we'd ask the patient. If they come in an angle closure, you probably don't have to ask all those questions because you already know the answer. Um, but what you see clinically in a lot of cases is significant corneal edema um, because of the high pressure in the eye. And also you'll see a very narrow anterior chamber. Sometimes it can be difficult to see because of the corneal edema. So um, those are some cases where, you know, immediately I'm trying to, to put drops on the lower the pressure. Don't, don't dilate the eye um, in those cases. Um, it should maybe go without saying that, but basically, you know, in our situation, what we do is um, as, as soon as we're able to clear the cornea enough for a good view for a laser, then the, one of the um, ophthalmologists will do, will do a laser PI. But oftentimes the cornea is so cloudy, we have to bring the pressure down. And sometimes that's through drops, sometimes that's through oral diamox, things like that, um, in order to kind of clear the cornea and, and get them in a position where it's safe um, and effective to do laser for that case. And when we're using diamox, we're not using sequels, right? So when we're using diamox, you don't want to do the extended release one, yeah. So, so, so a lot of times we'll see people, patients with narrow angles and their, their, uh, their pressure is normal. Uh, at what point do they pull the trigger and they'll do the preventive PI? So I think that depends on the practitioner. So, you know, some people will, will ask the history and make sure that it sounds like they've had a, a past history of angle closure. Also, I think... I think everybody's a little different as far as when they, you know, I was gonna say theoretically pull the trigger, but physically pull the trigger. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's it's different practitioner to practitioner. I don't do them myself. And so I can't really comment on it. Um, I refer patients for it sometimes. And those patients have, you know, narrow, narrow interchamber. You can't visualize many structures in the, in the angle. And even if they haven't had a prior episode, especially if they're advancing in age or they have a cataract, I think eventually this is going to be a problem for them. And so I'd rather be more proactive and refer the patients. You know, I've seen very commonly that patients will have headaches or eye aches with normal pressure and narrow angles. When I was in school, which was way before you were in school, they used to tell us that glaucoma patients don't have headaches other than angle closure glaucoma, but there's a spectrum between angle closure and open angle glaucoma. And a lot of those patients will have eye aches or headaches. Right, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say. Eye ache and like eye discomfort or ocular discomfort is, is you know, there's a lot of things that can cause a multifactorial um, you know, generally speaking, I'm not as familiar with, you know, eye pain from glaucoma itself, unless it's, you know, angle closure or something like that. Um, but there's a lot of reasons why people can have pain that's relegated to the eye, uh, that may or may not be actually from the eye. So hard to say sometimes. 
let's talk about corneal ulcers and then we're going to finish up with diplopia. But talk to me about corneal ulcers uh, from people over wearing their contact lenses or maybe from a viral type of situation or maybe I guess in Florida, you may see some fungal fungal corneal ulcers, which we don't see in New Jersey typically. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, your differential on corneal ulcers, how they're treated and what kind of recommendation can you give to the contact lens patients out there that to be a little extra careful? Yeah. So, I mean, first recommendation is, you know, making sure that you are wearing contact lenses that are prescribed to you um, that have been fit on your eye by an eye care professional. Um, and then also you want to be in a lens that that's kind of the, the updated lens that have better, what we call DK over T or better oxygenation for the cornea and the ocular surface. So that's the first step. Next step is wear them smartly. So I never recommend people sleep in their lenses overnight, even if the lens is technically FDA approved for overnight wear. No matter what, wearing a lens on the eye increases your risk of infection. Wearing a lens on your eye without taking it off increases it significantly more. Um, and any other bad habits that we might have also increase that risk. So swimming in the lenses, um, you know, going in the hot tub with lenses, showering with the lenses on. And generally speaking, those are high risk behaviors for the eye. Now, what can happen is that there can be microbes that get under the lens um, and affect the cornea. And at that point where there's inflammation um, in the cornea, we suspect there's you know, infectious etiology, we'll call it a microbial ulcer or suspected microbial ulcer. Um, and those are cases that definitely need to be seen by an eye professional. Um, I'd recommend for any patient who wears contact lenses, who has a red eye or any patient that has a red eye in general, to go see an eye doctor first instead of you know going to an ER because I feel like in a normal ER they're just not equipped with the microscopes and things like that that we have to see better and then in those cases also um, you're going to have a, a, a more thorough examination um, and then if you can be treated or you know referred if that's if that's indicated. Great and uh, how about if it's if it's something that's really painful that a patient may have an ulcer. Maybe it's a parasitic, a acanthamoeba. Are you still seeing those things in Florida? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, they're not the most common ulcers that we see, thankfully, because they're pretty hard to treat. Um, but in patients, we see pretty much everything. I mean, bacterial is probably still the most common by far and away. So like Pseudomonas or your gram negative, um, especially in the contact lens wearer or the younger patient. Uh, we also do see a decent amount of fungal infections. Um, and so in those infections, they can be different types. I mean, they don't always show up the same way, um, you know, hyphal versus maybe like a yeast formation. Um, you can't tell based on looking. And so that's where, you know, if it's a bad ulcer or it's not improving, we always do a culture to, to assess what's growing there. Um, and then in other cases, you'd have to always consider herpetic as a possibility because herpes can cause what looks like a, an infectious corneal ulcer. And it always should be on the differential, especially if there's you know, more of a lack of pain or not as much pain as you'd expect. And then in cases where there's severe pain that's out of proportion to your clinical findings, you always have to keep acanthamoeba on, on the back burner. Um, and that's a parasitic infection that basically is really hard to treat, has two different kinds of life forms in the, in the eye and is usually found in things like fresh water um, so showering or even like your hot tub or pool can have that. Has there been any update on treatment for acanthamoeba? Anything new that it's actually works faster? 
Yeah, well, there's there's one, I think, is it in a stage or phase two studies right now that's actually for acanthamoeba keratitis. I totally could be, I don't know the name of it, but I feel like I just read that last week and I, I'm not sure which one it is, but that would be very interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, as far as, as those go, I mean, there's, there's oral antiparasitic medications that are really expensive um, that, that have been used. Otherwise, you're typically thinking about the kind of the classic, the chlorhexidine, the PHMB, things like that. Um, and then also, you know, our institution, so um, we've got a cornea surgeon here that's been doing a lot of photodynamic therapy on cases. And um, he's been doing them on different types of microbial infections, bacterial, fungal, and then I think has a few on acanthamoeba as well. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of see where, where those types of, I guess, not your typical treatment, but where that kind of treatment's going, especially with, you know, photodynamic therapy, if that's something that people are using for cross-linking or they have instruments that can do that, you know, it would be helpful to, to see how that, how that works, how that improves treatment strategies. And you cultural ulcers or, you know, that's something that you typically, that looks typical, you won't cultural. Yeah, generally speaking, if it's small or in or peripheral, um, I might not culture them if I'm not, you know, really concerned about vision loss acutely. Uh, in cases that are central, even if they're small, I do tend to culture those just because you have less real estate in the middle of the cornea and you want to know what you're dealing with before you're throwing antibiotics on it because that can affect your culture positivity rate. And then also, um, you know, anything that's big or, you know, a lot of them that could be multifocal and multi-locations, um, those are ones where you would probably culture earlier on just to make sure you've got kind of a leg up on what you're treating. And are you using fortified antibiotics when you're using antibiotics for bacterial infections mm -hmm. or are you using just uh, commercial available? Yeah, so it depends. I mean, I'll use commercially available if that seems appropriate at the time. Um, you know, smaller ulcer or one that I'm maybe less worried about, then I would use something like maybe moxifloxacin, um, you know, and then other ones that are central or bigger or progressing rapidly or something, then typically I'll use fortified. So usually it's fortified vancomycin and tobramycin at our institution. Um, if you're thinking bacterial and that's kind of a, a starting point for most of them. And then as we get data back from culture results, we'll change the treatment strategy. And so, you know, if, if something grows back and it's fungal, you know, do we really need those fortified antibiotics on? Probably not. You might switch over to something like natamycin, maybe keep a, a broad spectrum, you know, polymyxin B trimethoprim on four times a day to prevent super infection. But we don't need the really heavy hitting toxic fortified antibiotics anymore because we're treating a different thing. So it really depends on, on, you know, kind of what grows back and then speciation if possible. And were you treating, are you doing it every hour, every two hours with the fortified it's, antibiotics? Yeah, it depends too. Depends, so right. I'll, I'll do either one. If it looks bad, it's either going to be every hour or every two hours around the clock, maybe for the first day or two days. But it, it sort of depends on, the, on the, the appearance of it when they come in. And the typical treatment for fungal, uh, natamycin, how often are you using orals as well? So I would say that I don't treat much fungal myself because I'm in an ER setting. And so I see them when they first come in. And in my setting, I typically, it's hard to prove that it's fungal right off the bat. Sometimes you have your suspicions, right? But even if I have a suspicion, I usually start with antibiotics first. And then like I had one that showed 
on the, the game sustained high full elements on like day two or day or day one and they did it and then it grew fusarium on day two. So at that point, that was a pretty quick turnaround for fungus. Um, and then the, the treatment was switched, but I wasn't seeing that patient anymore because I'm in the emergency department. So they were switched to anatomize and I think it was every two hours. Um, and then another one that I had was a, a type of candida that was pretty recent as well. And he was started on natamycin initially, and then was ended up switching over to um, voriconazole and oral, so fortified voriconazole and oral fluconazole, um, because those might have had a better efficacy on that type of yeast, actually. Oh, very interesting. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, I want to finish up with double vision. You know, as eye doctors, we're, we it's a common symptom but it could be also a scary symptom because somebody could have an aneurysm or a brain tumor that complains of double vision. Talk to us about how you work up a double vision patient. Yeah, so in these cases, you know, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating this is like an acute acquired, so something that just happened um, or a new symptom. In those cases, you know, you really have to get a good history of the patient. So Generally speaking, when they come into Plopi, first thing I ask is kind of where they, when they notice it, when did it start? Is it two things side by side? Is it two things up and down? That gives you a good idea of kind of what you're looking for at the start. Um, after that, then I like to uh, quantify things. And so I'll actually get out my prison bars and I, you know, you have your horizontal or your vertical, so you can kind of assess the motilities. And I usually like to get a primary gaze up, down and left and right gazes. And that helps me put numbers in writing write it down and then um, that's good for me when I'm kind of processing what's going on as well as moving forward in time we can see where the patient started today and we can compare it in the future because that becomes important in a lot of these cases. The other thing you want to do is see if it follows any sort of pattern so does this look like a classic third nerve palsy is this a classic fourth or a sixth um, in those cases then those types of nerve palsies especially if it's um, just you know if it's just one involved it's got a very specific pattern and then we know kind of what the most likely scenarios are. So in these cases, which we'll call like a mononeuropathy, if they have a third nerve, mononeuropathy, there's only one, how do you know there's only one nerve affected? Because you have to check all of the cranial nerves. So every time someone comes in with, you know, a six nerve palsy, even though the second you look at them, you know exactly what it is because the eyes, you know, pointed inwards, uh, you still have to check the other cranial nerves too. So don't forget about the other ones and don't check the, don't forget about five, which is sensation, right? So those all become really important. Once you've determined it's just one, then you know, you know, in the back of your mind, okay, the most likely scenario is this is microvascular of some kind, especially in our adult population. And so go down that list. Do they have a history of high blood pressure, hypertension, you know, lipid imbalance? Then the next thing would be, you know, cases of maybe a compression or a mass or something like that. Um, and then also trauma. So trauma for the fourth nerve is the second leading cause of acquired adult um, fourth nerve palsies. So going down that list, the review of systems is really, really important. Once you get into to situations um, that are more than one cranial nerve at a time, or maybe not an easy pattern, you have to start thinking about either, yeah, multiple cranial nerves, which all come together at the apex or in the cavernous sinus, then you also have to think about diseases of the orbit itself. So something like thyroid eye disease can cause a non, um, you know, it's not gonna be specific for one pattern, but that's something that you would think about or, you know, a different disorder of, of the orbit, maybe a mass or something like that, a meningioma or meningioma or lymphoma, things like that can also cause 
double vision. Now in those cases, if there's something in the orbit, usually you're gonna see other signs. Um, maybe the eye will be proptotic, maybe they'll have some swelling or fullness of the upper lid. They might have decreased vision on that side. So you, your exam really becomes especially critical in those cases too for looking into these other kind of details about the patient and the facial symmetry and things like that. Um, in general, if patients don't, you know, if they have one cranial nerve that's affected, but they're younger, so maybe they're, you know, 30 years old or they're, they're less than, you know, 55, if they've got any history of cancer at all, they get a scan. If they're younger, they get a scan. If they have any, um, you know, any history of basically uh, other orbital disorders or something like that, then I would scan them. If they don't fit the rules, basically, they definitely get a scan. And then even in some cases where they do fit the rules, I feel like just having had you know, the opportunity to work where I work, I've seen enough things where they fit the rules and they should have been a microvascular third nerve palsy and they ended up being a mass. And it would have gone, you know, would have gotten figured out eventually, but it would have been later in time. And so um, things like that make me a little bit more kind of, I guess, a little bit more of a push to scan, um, you know, double vision patients to look for, you know, a structural anomaly or something like that. And how about like, a, a, you know, maybe my, no, that's, that's good. Myasthenia, MS type patients. Yeah, definitely. So those would fit into the category where they don't fit a pattern, right? So in myasthenia might, that's a tricky one because it can start out as something that looks like an isolated fourth nerve palsy and then develop ptosis on the other side, you know? So you have to keep your differential open and always be willing to add things to your differential as time goes on as clinical picture sort of morphs or changes. Um, MS can show up as an isolated nerve palsy, but again, those patients might be younger and not have cardiovascular risk factors, so they should be scanned. I had one patient that presented with, um, he basically had decreased vision and bilateral optic atrophy, but going through his history in the past, he had had a six nerve palsy when he was in his early twenties. That's not normal, right? So that patient ended up having multiple sclerosis. Um, and then the optic atrophy was kind of a secondary thing years down the road from, you know, either recurrent bouts of optic neuritis or maybe progressive, you know, um, secondary progressive. So that was kind of an interesting case. I've also had a patient that showed up with a fourth nerve palsy that was isolated fourth, was stable for a few weeks and then developed a small ptosis on that side, but it was really mild. Then her eye started to get a little bit red on the same side. Um, and then all of a sudden she, um, she showed up and she had, you know, a proptotic swollen eye with basically ophthalmoplegia and hers was a developing CC fistula, but it started with a fourth nerve because the fourth nerve runs through the cavernous sinus. And so you have to always keep in mind that things can change and don't be dead set on your, on your diagnosis so that you miss something, you know, more, more serious or more grave. The last question I want to ask you, and I really want to thank you for your gener you're being so generous with your time. I have to ask you about migraines. Patients are always coming in. They lost half their vision. They lost part of their vision. I'm sure you see a lot of patients in the ER with migraines. Can you talk about those patients? Yeah, definitely. So migraines are something we see a lot because of the most classic symptom visually would be the aura. So people get kind of these sparkly, sometimes colorful or jagged, edgy lights that typically are on one side of the vision. The patients will think it's one eye, but it's actually the one side of both eyes. 
Um, and then I always ask those patients if they have other symptoms of, you know, headaches, any pain or pressure, especially after those visual symptoms, did you develop any like mild headache or kind of a pulsing or anything on the opposite side of the, of the vision changes? Um, the, those patients come in a lot, you know, and, and really reassuring them that, you know, if the fundus looks okay, the, the retina is fine. It's not a retina issue. Um, but we, a lot of times are probably the first people to, to give a diagnosis of, of probable migraines just because of how they come in. Now, the other patients, some, some patients might have kind of complicated migraines, which is sort of a whole nother, um, like kind of what you're, you're coming on to here, a whole nother group of patients. And in my opinion, I treat those like a stroke because there's no way to know it's not if they had lost half of their vision um, or even complicated migraines can cause, you know, like paresthesias on half of the body or something like that. And those are something I wouldn't mess with. I would, I would honestly treat those like a potential stroke until you know differently and then they get seen by neurology and then they, they can make that diagnosis. That's not one that I'm comfortable making myself. And when you have somebody with a migraine, do you talk to them about any triggers of foods or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. So um, migraines, you know, as we know, can, can show up technically at any point in life. Usually it's going to be younger. If you have a, a patient with a new onset of repeated migraines when they're in their you know, 80s and never had them before, that's a little bit of a red flag. Um, but yeah, triggers can be excessive caffeine, you know, low sleep, uh, and they're not sleeping well. Even if they're laying down, maybe they don't get good rest. And so thinking about, you know, why that would be. Um, sometimes coffee, chocolate, wine, which are basically like the three best things in the world. So <laughs> they can all be triggers for patients. Um, but generally reducing, you know, reducing those triggers, reducing stress as best as possible. And then usually getting them, you know, if they are doing all those things and still having frequent episodes of, of migraines, you can get them plugged into, you know, a headache specialist or a migraine specialist. Um, and they'll go through all of that stuff again with them, but then also maybe offer kind of migraine abortive therapies for the patient. Maybe there's something they could take at the start of their symptoms that would, you know, get rid of the headache component to it as well moving forward. I want to thank Dr. Allison Bowsong for joining me today. She's a wealth of information. If people want to find out more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, so um, Google, I guess. And uh, <laughs> I have an Instagram account that's called all underscore things underscore I, um, E-Y-E. And so it's kind of an interesting way that I, I like to share little bits of information, little small clinical vignettes about, about cases. So that would be a good way to find them. Well, I, well thank you. Uh, this was a great discussion. It's really a, a fun topic. And I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, for Open Your Eyes, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb. Until next time, thank you for joining me. Thank, thank you, you, Allison. Appreciate it. Bye. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.